What do we do with something that is beautiful? It's just beautiful. And it's also broken. It's profoundly broken. And it's ours. That trinity, beautiful, broken, and ours, is a challenge to figure out how to do justice to all three aspects. So I want to tell you a story that captures beautiful, broken, and ours. And it is embodied in a photograph. It's a black and white photograph of a Jewish family that was taken in 1944 in Bulgaria. This is the family of Rabbi Ronnie Yeager. Rabbi Ronnie Yeager is an Israeli. He is a rabbi. He is a rabbi of a congregation in Tel Aviv called Beit Tefillah. He's also a senior faculty member at Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. He's also a teacher of rabbis. Hartman has this fully thriving rabbinical program, and Rabbi Yeager is a teacher of Israeli rabbis. And he spoke to our group a couple of weeks ago when we were at Hartman. And he literally carries around this black and white photograph of his own family. And he does so because to him, this captures the beauty, the brokenness, and the fact that Israel is very much his. There's two things about this photograph that are striking. First, it's the date. It's 1944, Eastern Europe. Well, that is just about the worst time in the history of the Jewish people to be alive. 1944, the Nazi death machine was roaring full blast. 1944, the cattle cars to Auschwitz. There was a representative cattle car at Harvard Yard in the spring around Yom HaShoah. Those cars were going 24-7, taking Jews to their deaths. 1944, even though Germany was losing the war, they were investing resources on finding and hunting and killing Jews. 1944, Hungary, for example, gave up all of its Jews to the death camps. 1944, the worst time to be a Jew. That's the first thing about this picture. But the second, which is just surprising, is that this family of Bulgarian Jews is totally smiling. You have Ronnie Yeager's mother, who is a little girl, she's like two years old, her two older sisters, and their parents, and they are, and you can see it even in the black and white photograph, they're smiling, and one is left with the question, what is a Jewish family doing in 1944 that is smiling? And the answer, according to Rabbi Ronnie Yeager, has everything to do with the special case that was Bulgaria. Because Bulgaria saved its Jews. And how did that happen? Ordinary, non-Jewish Bulgarian citizens refused to be accomplices of the Nazis. Ordinary, non-Jewish Bulgarian citizens did everything they could to save their fellow Jewish Bulgarian citizens. And leadership started at the top. The head of the Bulgarian church said publicly and explicitly, 
that if you cooperate with the Nazis, if you turn in Jews to their deaths, you will be officially excommunicated by the Bulgarian church. And as a result, the Bulgarian citizens were not accomplices. In fact, Eichmann penned a memo in 1944 saying that the Third Reich is not having any traction at getting Jews to the death camps because Bulgarian citizens are not cooperating. So after the war, Ronnie Yeager's grandparents and his mother and his two aunts make Aliyah. And while they make Aliyah, they do so with love in their hearts for Bulgaria, singing the Bulgarian national anthem in their hearts. And Ronnie Yeager literally, this is a photograph, you can't see it, but the original photograph, he literally carries it with him where he goes because he feels that this photograph captures Israel. First, the beauty of Israel. His grandparents were total Zionists. They gave a very special name to Rabbi Ronnie Yeager's mother. Her name is not Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, or Leah, or Shana Carmel. Her name is Herzelina. They named her Herzelina, and that's how she went through all the years of her life, Herzelina. And Ronnie points out that his grandparents, Zionists that they were, could never have imagined the beauty of Israel at 75. How burgeoning and thriving. When you go to Israel, it feels like the national symbol of the country is a crane because there's just always new, big buildings getting built in Israel. Cranes, big, beautiful buildings. There's also the science and the technology and the medicine and the startup nation. There's also the renaissance of Jewish culture and Jewish learning. There's also the renaissance of the Hebrew language. After 2,000 years, a source of literature and poetry and song. There is also Israel's incredible military. There is also the fact that Israel has fulfilled its mission of being a safe haven to Jews who are in danger whenever and wherever they are, whether it's the Jews of Arab lands in the 40s and 50s who were kicked out of their Arab lands, or Ethiopian Jews, or Russian Jews, or today French Jews. If you go to a cafe in Jerusalem, you will hear French being spoken. Israel takes the Jewish people in. And if you're there on Shabbat, especially in Jerusalem, the crisp air, the beautiful golden buildings, and the Kedusha, the holiness of Shabbat, is literally palpable. You can feel it. And even the most painful things about Israel, like the demonstrations over the judicial reform, in the end show what a robust democracy Israel is beautiful and broken, so broken. Rabbi Ronnie Yeager says he owes his very existence to the decency and humanity of ordinary Bulgarian citizens. That decency of ordinary citizens means that his parents 
uh, his mother lived, and his grandparents lived, and that means that he got to live, and that means his children got to live. All of their existence for all those generations flows from the decency and humanity of ordinary citizens. And so he feels that there is an equation. What is the moral caliber of a society? It is determined by the moral caliber of its ordinary citizens. And that's why Ronnie Yeager now is in anguish, literally anguish, about the challenges to Israel's moral caliber revealed by a very serious problem of the pogroms. As you know, I don't know how much you've been following the story, but I, actually all this played out when we were in Israel. Four innocent people from a town called Eli were murdered, four innocent Jews were murdered, and the perpetrator was shot and killed, you know, at the time. And then what happened was that settlers, settlers perpetrated a pogrom. And what they did to this innocent Arab village is too horrific, I would not recount it on the bima, it would be the saddest sermon you ever heard here. But if you follow the stories of the pogroms that Jews committed in the name of the Jewish people against innocent, innocent Arabs, it will break your heart. And not just that they did it, but they did it with the knowledge and the assent of the Israeli government that nodded at it and winked at it and did not crack down on it. And in fact, Ben Gavir and Smotrich said that when Arabs kill Jews, that's terrorism. When Jews kill Arabs, that's not terrorism. And the brokenness leaves Ronnie Yeager not knowing what to do. And he shared with the group so candidly that he's 52, and he has always served in Miluim, the reserve unit, even though he's not legally required to anymore at 52. But he chooses to do Miluim because he loves Israel that much. And now he doesn't know what to do. How can he serve this government that nods and winks and permits pogroms? How could Jews who receive pogroms, perpetrate pogroms? How could a Jewish government that knows the evil of pogroms not crack down on pogroms? How could he serve this government? On the other hand, his 18-year-old is soon to enroll in the Israeli military. How can he not serve if his son is serving? And how can he not serve if the people under his command are serving? He's genuinely anguished. And so he carries this photograph because Israel is at the same time beautiful and broken and his. Now, we don't have the particulars of Ronnie Yeager's story, but I suspect that many of us have our own welter of emotion when we think about Israel always, but especially this week. So the military operation in Janine that was in the papers every day, and you saw the pictures and the smoke and the fire, etc. That military operation was surgical. It was tailored. It had a specific strategic objective, which was to find caches of weapons that Palestinian terrorists 
engineering stored in civilian places like mosques in the basement of a mosque in the basement of a preschool. And those weapons have been used and would be used to kill innocent Jews. There can be no question that the military operation was legitimate self-defense, and there can be no question that the military operation was morally justifiable. End of paragraph. And that military operation is also heartbreaking. And it's heartbreaking at so many levels. First of all, there's no one on planet Earth that thinks that the military operation actually solved Israel's problem. In fact, everyone acknowledges that it didn't solve Israel's problem. It deferred Israel's problem. Because everyone acknowledges that terrorists still are in massive numbers in Jenin, and they will rearm. But it's also heartbreaking because Palestinians in the West Bank have such bleak and hopeless lives. Now, it is true that so much of their pain is self-inflicted. It is true that they have been so ill-served by their leadership that Fatah is inept and corrupt, that Hamas is violent, purveyors of death, that the Palestinian street is rejectionist, that for so many years Palestinians have refused to accept the existence of Israel and have voted in people like Hamas, and that now, by the way, there are all these anarchic, violent subgroups. All that is true. And it is also true that the 20-somethings of the IDF are just worthy of our love and admiration. Can you imagine how scary it would be? Can you imagine how dangerous it would be? Can you imagine if it was your 20-something, if it was your 20-something child or grandchild that was going into the streets of Janin fighting armed Palestinians? But for all that, for all that, the love and admiration for the IDF and, and how the Palestinians so often bring this on themselves. It is just so deeply sad, it is more than sad, it is heartbreaking, that so many young Palestinian people see lives that are so bleak and so without hope that they would rather die at the age of 18 fighting Israel than live because they cannot imagine a life worth living for. And that is heartbreaking. And here's where all of this intersects us and our kishka. When we follow the news of Israel, the war or the military operation in Janine, when we read about innocent Jews getting stabbed and rammed in Tel Aviv, in Ali, there's a huge uptick in terrorism against innocent Israeli lives. When we read about Jews committing pogroms and the Israeli government knowing this and not stopping it, very often what this does to our kids is it just turns them off from Israel. They don't say Israel is beautiful and broken and ours. They say Israel is yours. Mom and Dad, Israel is yours. Papa and Nana, Israel is yours. It's too much. It's too complex. 
I throw up my hands. And so, how do we make Israel ours for our own children? When the news of the week and the constant challenge of Israel, the brokenness, threatens to make our kids wash their hands from Israel. By the way, don't write me angry emails. Talk to your kids and grandkids. Talk to your kids and grandkids who are in college or in their 20s and compare how they feel about Israel to how we feel about Israel. This is real. I put it this way, I think the most urgent problem of the Jewish people in North America is the yawning and ever-growing chasm between our Jewish homeland and our Jewish future, namely our children and grandchildren. So what do we do about it? So I actually heard something from Daniel Hartman that is so elegant and so simple to say, hard to do, but super helpful. Here's what Daniel has to say. He says, whenever you feel edge and disquiet about what's going on in Israel, don't talk yourself out of it. Don't deny it. Pay attention to the tension. Pay attention to the tension of what's bothering you about Israel, and then ask yourself one simple, single question. What can we do to make it better? What can we do to make it better? And Daniel tells the story that in February, when the brouhaha over the judicial reform was really emerging, a famous American rabbi, very famous and a great speaker, gave a speech in Israel about the judicial reform problem. And this speaker was on fire and this speaker sounded the alarm, and this speaker was fulminating, and this speaker was talking in thunderous ways about the peril to Israel as a democracy, and it must be Jewish and a democracy. And when he was done, Daniel Hartman made a beeline to him and said to him, Rabbi, I hated your sermon. And the rabbi said, you hated my sermon. Why did you hate my sermon? I would think, based on what I've read that you've said, based on the podcasts that I've listened to, that you would agree with what I said. And Daniel said, I agreed with the content, with the substance of your points, but I hated your sermon because all you did was offer a critique without at the same time offering a strategy for how to fix it. You offered alarm bells without an activism strategy for how to make it better. Never critique Israel unless you can also offer a strategy for how to make it better. So here's an example from Hartman, we were just there, of what this looks like. So one of Israel's significant challenges is that 20% of its citizens are Arab Israeli Palestinians. And they have far fewer resources they lead very different lives. They have much grimmer and grayer prospects than Israeli Jews. And they are citizens of Israel. And Israel's founding document, its Declaration of Independence, swears at the outset that they are entitled to equal rights and they don't 
have that yet. So Daniel, here's what he did to make it better. He actually hired, harmonist hired a woman named Rana Farhum, who is a Palestinian woman, very impressive woman. And she's a senior executive at Hartman. And her job is to work on this thing called shared society. And Daniel was in dialogue with Rana Farhum one night. It's a very big, beautiful event and beautiful courtyard, beautiful night. And she asks him a simple, hard question. She says, Daniel, what do you want from me? A Palestinian woman who's an Israeli citizen who's now on the Hartman team. And Daniel says, I want dual loyalty from you. I want you to be loyal to your people, the Palestinian people, and I want you to be loyal to the Jewish state of which you are a citizen. And not only loyalty, I want love. I want you to love the Jewish state. To which Rana Farhum says, but Daniel, loyalty and love have to be earned. They can't be commanded or guilted. And Israel has not earned our loyalty. And Israel has not earned our love. And then they said, yes, that is the work that we need to do. We need to build a society where Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arab Israelis, 80% of the country and 20% of the country, see each other, regard each other, and feel claimed by each other's stories and destiny. We need to build a society where Israeli Palestinian Jews, 20% of the country, are treated so well that of course they love Israel and of course they feel loyalty to Israel. They're not there yet by any stretch, but that is the work that they are committed to do. So, what do we do about beautiful, broken, and ours? We understand that that is just the first chapter in the story. The next chapter in the story makes a claim on us. Beautiful, broken, and ours, and a little bit better. And if we can figure out a little bit better, we can help make Israel a little bit better. And we can make Israel ours for our own children and grandchildren. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.